Off they go. You can turn over to 1 Corinthians. We're back in the book of 1 Corinthians. And I appreciate your prayers this Friday is when I have that little procedure for my kidney stone, so I pray that all goes well. Appreciate that. But today we're in 1 Corinthians, we're in the 77th message of our study through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're talking about the reality of Christ's resurrection. And today we're going to be looking at some of the testimonies that speak to Christ's resurrection. And Christianity, as we know, is based on historical fact. It's not based on human reason. It's not based on our imagination. It's not some ingenious hypothesis to account for any kind of supernatural phenomenon that we see, nor is it a poetic myth to represent any other truth. It is based on fact. It is based on the facts of the Word of God. It's God's personal account for us and testimony to His Son. And these facts are simple. Uh, first of all, I, just a way of introducing this message, it's, there are some personal facts that are connected with a certain person. Um, and that person is not Plato or Socrates or Caesar. That person is the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, we need to remind ourselves of that sometimes because we get off message. Secondly, these facts are not only personal, they're about a person, but they're few. There's not a whole lot here concerning facts when it comes to Christianity that matter. The main facts are that Jesus Christ died. Secondly, that he was buried. And thirdly, he rose. Those are facts that if they're not true, then Christianity is not true. Let's just pack up and go home. They are essential facts, but they imply so much more. So they're personal, they're few, but they're also well attested to, and that's what we see here in 1 Corinthians 15. We see facts. Uh, and there's, there's no facts on record that are better attested than the facts that Paul records for us in 1 Corinthians 15 through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And just in way of reminder, Muhammad died on June 8th, 632 A.D. at the age of 61. And there is many Muslims that visit his tomb to mourn his death. That's why they go there. They never go there to celebrate his resurrection. They go there to mourn his death. The tomb of Nikolai Lenin, the founder of communism, the leader of the Bolshevik Revolution, is buried in Red Square in Moscow. It's visited, I'm told, by thousands. Why do they visit this place? To mourn his death. Uh, they're not celebrating his resurrection. See, the marvelous reality of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ is essential. It's the cornerstone to our faith. It's something we can't overlook just as the blood flowing through your body right now gives you life, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that, that blood, that heart that pumps life into our faith, into our souls. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, if you believe in your heart that God has what? raised Jesus from the dead and confess him as Lord with your mouth, the Bible makes a promise. You will be saved. Not you might. Not if you're good enough. No, you will be saved. And Christians down through the centuries have staked their eternal destiny on the reality of the resurrection. And, and it gives us an indicator that we're called to look forward to the life to come, right? Right? We're not to keep our heart and our mind focused on this place. 
because we, we live realizing that this world is not all there is. There's so much more. It's not even the most important part of our existence, and yet we make such a big deal about it. In a lot of ways, it's unimportant if you stop and think about it biblically. The only thing that we do here on earth that's important is we do things, hopefully, with our lives that glorify God. That's the main thing. We live for that blessed hope. We set our affections, the Bible says, on things above, not on the things of the earth. Because we live in light of that life which is to come, when we will be ushered into the presence of God in the glory of eternal heaven. I trust that's your hope this morning. Because it was the resurrection of Jesus Christ that established that hope for us. Because he lives, we live also. Jesus himself said, I am the resurrection, what? And the life. Whoever believes in me shall never die. In the real sense, those who believe in Jesus Christ for salvation never really die. Yeah, there's that momentary cease to our physical existence here on this earth. But the Bible says we are awakened in eternity instantaneously in the glory of life that God has prepared for his own in his presence. That's what we have to look forward to. And so everything in Christianity hinges on the issue of the election, or of the resurrection, excuse me. <laughs> Boy, I don't know where that came from. <laughs> I was talking of spiritual election, surely. <laughs> uh, I'll do some editing with that. So because he lives, we will live forever. Amen? Amen. And if he did not rise, neither do we. And that's Paul's message here. Uh, if, if we don't have hope in the resurrection of Christ, we have no hope. Because life is not really about this world. We live here because the Lord has put us here for his purpose, to carry out his will, to glorify his name, to draw others into his kingdom until such time he calls us to come home. And so the resurrection is so critical to us because there's no faith, there's no Christ, there's nothing without it. As a matter of fact, you know, I saw a little headline this past week in a, a news article, a Christian news article, and it said, Why the cross is all we need. And that sounds spiritual, that sounds good, right? But really, without the resurrection, the cross doesn't mean anything. Without the resurrection, guess what? Jesus was just another guy that hung on a cross and died. And there were thousands of them back then. And so we have to be reminded that it's always been, it's always will be the foundation of our faith. And because of that, the enemy's not stupid. The enemy knows how important it is for us to understand and to have faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's why he rolls up his sleeves every day and attacks it. And he's done so throughout the ages. Now, be reminded, this is really one of the first accounts that speaks to the resurrection in all of Scripture. Because 1 Corinthians was written before the account that we have in John, the Gospel of John, uh, Luke wrote his account after Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians was written about 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's pretty close. It was written at least 40 years before the Gospel of John. And so John's Gospel was written about 50 or so years after the resurrection. And so when you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you come to a very, very early defense and apologetic for the, for the resurrection. Before Luke, before John, some even believe before Matthew and Mark, certainly around the time of Matthew and Mark. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all give testimony to the resurrection. And guess what? So does 1 Corinthians. And all these know that this spiritual truth that we're studying is 
under assault, and it's become the attack of the enemy because it is the cornerstone of our faith. And the great chapter here in 1 Corinthians 15 opens up with Paul's defense on what we would call direct grounds. Um, You know, when I was working with the district attorney's office for the first, I think it was four to six weeks, all I did is sit in a courtroom and watch a murder trial. It was phenomenal. I mean, it was amazing. And once in a while, I'd have to run over to the courthouse and bring a storyboard back or whatever, but I was just glued to that trial. And I remember them introducing evidence. And, And in any court, you have different categories of evidence, right? You have circumstantial evidence, but you also have direct evidence. And what Paul gives us here is direct evidence. Um, you can't get any more direct evidence than eyewitness account. Someone points at you and says, yeah, you're the one that did it. Yeah, how, what are you going to do with that? And so personal testimony of those who have encountered the power and the presence of Christ as the risen Christ is what Paul presents here. And, and I think that it's, it's important that we um, just read the first 11 verses. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through, verses 4 through 11 today. But uh, let's stand in the honor of God's word as I read verses 1 through 11 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 1, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance that I also received, that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, some who have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Father, we ask you to bless this word to our hearts and our minds today. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, last week or uh, our last message in 1 Corinthians, four weeks ago basically, uh, was talking about the prominence of the resurrection. And we, we went over how the resurrection of Christ is the focal point in reference to, first of our, our salvation. He talks about that in verses 1 and 2, but also to the Scriptures in verses 3 to 4. And so in this chapter, Paul called on the Corinthians to lay hold of their faith in Christ's resurrection. And to realize why it was so important that they live in light of the hope that it brings. See, they, Paul's not writing them to convince them of Christ's resurrection. They believe that. Remember, the Corinthians were having a problem because of their pagan background and everything, believing that they too would be resurrected one day. And so Paul is kind of relating back to Christ and, and giving answers why Christ is risen He's not trying to convince them of that. He's just using logic. He's saying, look, if Christ was risen from the dead, you too will be risen from the dead. And so throughout history, the testimony of responsible and honest eyewitnesses have been considered one of the most reliable forms of evidence in any court of law. And so this is Paul's kind of third evidence here. He brings up these eyewitnesses. And he wants people to understand that, you know what, this is important, that these aren't just fairy tales. These are accounts that are recorded in Scripture where people actually saw and handled the risen Christ. So let's look at these proofs here of the resurrection as we uh, begin in verse 5 there. 
he goes over the gospel, basically, in the verse 3 and 4. He talks about how important it is that they understand that this isn't something he made up. This is something that he had to receive supernaturally. And there's a couple reasons. First of all, he wasn't there with the other apostles, right? Paul existed later. Jesus made a special trip on the road to Damascus. We'll be looking at that for, for Paul. But we need to be reminded that here he explains in what we believe. He talks about the gospel that he preached to them. And notice he says, what you received. So that indicates that most or some of the Corinthians are brothers and sisters in Christ. They're legitimately saved. They received the gospel of Jesus Christ, even with all their problems. You know, sometimes we think Christians are perfect. They're not. They're simply sinners saved by God's grace. And we mess up probably daily, if not momentarily, throughout our lives. And that's why it's so important to have a proper understanding of who you are in Christ. Because if you don't have that proper understanding of who you are as a child of God in Christ, what happens when you sin? The Spirit convicts you, rightfully so. And what are you called to do? You're called to confess that sin. Say the same thing that God says about that sin. And go back to God, and and you don't have to ask him for forgiveness. He's already forgiven you. You simply say, Lord, thank you for your forgiveness in Christ, because that's who I am. I'm, I'm a follower of Christ, and he paid for my sins on Calvary. And help me to stop being controlled by my flesh and, and, and yield my, my mind and my body back to the Spirit of God. Holy Spirit, take control of me. Fill me with the Spirit. And when you do that, that's, that's part of our sanctification process. You're not going to be perfect this side of glory. And for some people, um, that can be very frustrating. You know, it's frustrating to work on something that never has an end, right? I mean, it's, it's frustrating to work on a project where it just never ends. It goes on and on and on. You see this sometimes when people uh, design and, and, and build houses. They start in, in one place, and it just continues on and on and on. I used to have a, uh, one of my nieces was married to a, a guy who had a painting company down in Carmel, and he did high-end painting, like with the textures and all that stuff, very high-end in multi-million-dollar homes. And I remember one day I was talking to him, and I said, man, that must be a neat job. And he goes, yeah, it is. He goes, but it can get real old real quick. And I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, you know, I got one lady. She's just got more money, and she knows what to do with. I said, well, isn't that a good thing? He goes, well, I thought it would be, but I'm in the year four working for this lady. And we keep on repainting the inside of her house. And he goes, we're not talking just a roller. And I'm talking about, you know, technical stuff. You have to have certain rags and you do this texture. And, and oh, she loves it for about a week. And then she goes, you know, the more I look at this, I just think we need to start all over. Come and put. And he gets so, he got so frustrated. He actually said, I can't do this anymore. I mean, he's making money hand over fist from her. <laughs> but he just said, no. You know, sometimes when a project doesn't end, it, it wears us out. And, and that's why we're called to continue to trust Christ. We're called to continue to live for him each and every day. Don't, don't just give in. Realize, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to fail. I'm going to falter. I'm going to sin just like everybody else does. But when I know who I am in Christ, it says there in verse 1, in which you stand... You didn't only receive Christ, but you continue to stand in your faith. That's important. And notice verse 2, he says, And by which you are being saved. You're constantly being saved. You're being saved from your sin constantly. You're being saved from yourself. You're being saved from the sin all around us. God constantly has his hand on his children, and he's continuously applying the blood of Christ to us. And so he says, this is something that that is continuous. Because you're going to hold fast to the word that I preached to you, Paul says. And if you don't hold fast, guess what? You, You believed in vain. I don't know what you believed, but you didn't believe the message I gave you. That's what Paul's saying. 
Sometimes it's frustrating. Sometimes you can share the gospel with somebody and, boy, they're all, well, yeah, I want to get saved. And they want to come to the Lord and they want to, you know, do, do everything that the Lord wants them to do. And then after about six months, you don't see them anymore. Only to find out, wow, they're back to their old sinful lifestyle and they don't want to have anything to do with the church or Christ. Well, that person didn't lose their salvation. They never had salvation. See, it's very easy when we share the gospel with people to talk people into anything. You know, and I like that, what Michael said. We don't save anybody. If you go out there and you try to evangelize and you think you're the one that's going to save them, you've got a problem. You don't have the power to save them. It's only by the grace of God that God saved you. <laughs> so we need to stop and we need to realize that, okay, this is, this is a, a work of God in somebody's heart. We can prevent, present the truth to them. The truth that, you know what, we're all sinners. We all need God's grace. We're all doomed to a judgment in eternal hell if we do not have the grace of Christ applied to us. But once we have that grace applied to us, once we are in Christ, we need to understand who we are in Christ. So when the enemy comes around to beat us up, we don't have to just fall prey to that and go, well, okay, no, I'm a child of God. I'm someone who's had my sins forgiven. Past, present, future. And God holds me in the palm of his hand. I don't have to listen to the enemy or give in to his tactics. As believers, for the first time, we're free to do whatever God wants us to do to honor him. So he says, I delivered to this, this to you in verse 3 that's most important because I received it. Paul says, I received this. What is this message that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures? He doesn't stop there. Notice, he says, and, you know, it's one thing for people to claim a lot of things, right? You ever been in Costco and you're walking around and sometimes they'll have booths set up where they have demos going on. I love those things. You know, usually I just stand there for whatever. My wife goes shopping. I just stand there and, you know, whether it's the Vitamix machine or whatever, the knife guy, you know, that's kind of cool to watch. But what are they trying to do? They're trying to convince you through evidence to buy their product. You know, the guy's not just sitting there with a booth with a bunch of boxes saying, hey, buy one of these. That wouldn't do the trick. But when you see that Vitamix thing crank up and it cranks so fast that it turns the water into soup and boiling soup at that, it's amazing. You know, you, you, I, I need one of these things. You know, they put concrete in them and everything else. It's like, well, it's, it's kind of cool to watch, but it's like, I don't think I would try that at home, right? Well, this is what Paul is doing here. He's saying, hey, you know what? This is truth. This is factual, but I have evidence to prove. And look at what he says in the beginning of verse 5. He says, in that he appeared to Cephas, or to Peter. He appeared to Peter. And it's, it's, it's significant that Paul says that Jesus appeared to those who saw him after the resurrection. Um, until he revealed his identity to them, not even Mary Magdalene from John 20, are the two disciples on the Emmaus Road, or the disciples who were gathered together on that Easter evening, none of them recognized him. And uh, the gospel accounts talk about Jesus appearing or manifesting himself after his resurrection time and time again. But he was recognized only by those to whom he chose to reveal himself. And there's no record that he revealed himself to any other than his followers. Um, one of the requirements to be an apostle, one of the requirements for apostleship, you know, people say today, oh, I'm an apostle. Call me apostle so-and-so. Well, no, you're not. I mean, we're all apostles. We're all sent ones in a generic sense. But they're talking about the office of apostle. And we went over how... Uh, that, that ceased when the, the church, uh, after it got established and everything, there was no need for continuous apostleship. We don't believe in that. But it's important to understand that the requirements to be an apostle 
was, one of them was you had to see the risen Christ. You had to see the risen Christ. That, that, that's over in Acts. If you look at Acts chapter 1, it points that out to us clearly. Acts chapter 1 in verse 22. This is after Judas checked out and they needed another apostle. And it says, uh, let another take his office, the end of verse 21. And some of the men who accompanied us during all of the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So that was one of the requirements to be an apostle. So the next time you hear somebody call themselves an apostle, ask them, oh, have you seen the risen Christ? Be ready. They'll probably say yes. But I highly doubt it. So the first apostle to whom Jesus appeared to was Cephas or, or Peter. Uh, we're not told the exact time uh, for that appearance. We only know that it was sometime after his appearance to Mary. I thought it was kind of ironic that Christ appeared first to, to Mary, a woman, and before his appearance to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. We're not told why the Lord appeared to Peter uh, first or separately, but think about it. If anybody needed encouragement at this point in the game, guess who? It was Peter, right? He just got done, what, denying the Lord? I mean, here he's this fo- supposed to be this faithful follower of the Lord, and Boy, he run and, runs and hides. Um, he denied the Lord. But because of his role, I think, as the leader among the apostles and in the early church, uh, he went to Peter first out of all the apostles. And, and Jesus really, by doing that, what did he do? He emphasized his grace. Here's somebody who... You know, in, in, in school, they used to call him Pendulumic Peter. At one hand, you know, Jesus, I'll go with you wherever. In the next minute, you know, Jesus having to tell him, get thee behind me, Satan. <laughs> right? He just went back and forth, back and forth. And he kind of just flew off the handle at times. And he said things that were not proper, and the Lord had to correct him. But Peter had forsaken the Lord. But guess what? The Lord hadn't forsaken Peter. Isn't that a wonderful message for us? I mean, how many times in our lives have we denied Christ? You know, don't sit there all spiritual looking at me like, oh, I've never done that. Well, yes, you have. In your thought, in your actions, maybe even in your words. We all have to some degree. But you know what? It's wonderful that the Lord has not forsaken us. I think Christ did not appear to Peter because Peter deserved it. That's not why. But I think maybe because Peter needed to see him the most. And the Lord knew that. Peter needed encouragement in his life. Peter was the Lord's spokesman at Pentecost. He was crucially used in the expansion of the church for several years. And as such, he was a a prime to be a witness to the resurrected Christ. And so it's it's important that he appeared, first of all, to Peter. But then it says also to the twelve. To the twelve. And uh, some people say, well, I thought there was just eleven because Judas checked out. Yeah, but sometimes the scripture refers to the twelve as a band of twelve, even though there maybe it's not twelve present. It does that throughout the scriptures. Um, he appeared to the eleven disciples, uh, even though they were referred to as the twelve And uh, the apostles, what was their role? What did they do? They laid the foundation, the Bible says, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, for the church. They were on the cutting edge, the foundation of the church, which from the beginning based its beliefs and practices on their teaching. And that's when we look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it tells us to what? All the teachings were based on the apostles, what they were teaching, because that's what they got from Christ. Uh, Those men whom the Lord used to establish his church on earth all saw him in his resurrected body. They were 
honest, they were capable, they were reliable witnesses to the most important event in history. But it didn't stop there. Not only was uh, Peter and the apostles witness to this, but look at what it says in verse 6. Paul goes on, he says, you know, I'm not going to stop there. Then he appeared, Christ appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And he says, some whom are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Remember, this is in close proximity, Paul is writing this to the resurrection of Christ, even though he didn't eyewitness it when it actually happened. And so he says that he appeared to more than 500 of his disciples. Now, it'd be one thing if you said, we have 500 individual accounts. But 500 people at one time, most people believe this probably had to happen in Jerusalem just because of the gathering of all, all those, that many people. Um, but he, 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 he's talking here about quantity. You know, if you have something happen on the street and one person comes to you and says, oh man, I saw this thing happen. And it's just outlandish, right? And they're telling you this tale and you're going, I can't believe that. What are you going to say? Did anybody else see it? Did anybody else witness it? And if the guy goes, yeah, there's about 40 other people standing there with me and they all saw it too. Oh, as outlandish as the story may be, you'll probably say, well, then I got to believe it because there's eyewitnesses to it. Well, here there was 500 brothers who all saw the risen Christ at one time. He gives no indication of who these people were, um, but Jesus appeared to them. We don't know where. Like I said, it may have been Jerusalem. But they were surely well-known at least in the early church. And they would have been questioned about seeing the Savior, the risen Savior. Uh, and most of them were, it says, they were still alive. So what's Paul saying? He's saying, hey, if you don't believe me, go ask them personally. They'll tell you. Uh, some of them died, obviously. But at the same time, the same place, 500 witnesses saw Jesus alive after his resurrection. I mean, that's a very, very strong case. Just that in and of itself. But then he goes on and he, he talks about appearing to James. Look at what he says in verse 7. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. But I was curious about this, James. There's two of the apostles. Um, we don't know which one, which James it was. One was the son of Zebedee, and the other was the son of Alphaeus. Um, they both were, were named James. Uh, a lot of people believe that this James was the half-brother to Christ, uh, the author of the letter James. He was a key leader in the Jerusalem church. But what was his spiritual condition when Christ was with him? Before his resurrection. You remember? All of his family rejected him, right? He wasn't a believer. He thought his brother, half-brother, was nuts. They thought he was crazy. And so in any case, I think having James on board as someone who used to be a skeptic, someone who claimed that this Christ was just, you know, not the real son of God and everything, he wasn't a believer, now he is. Wow, that's, that's pretty encouraging to have somebody like that on board. Especially if they're a family member, a former unbeliever. He was added to the apostles, and he was seen by these apostles. He was seen by the 500. Acts chapter 1, verse 30 says, Over a period of 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension, Jesus appeared to all the apostles. It doesn't give us... the each individual place or, or time or occasion, but it says, hey, he appeared to them all, even though they're not all specified. So we see the evidence mounting up. We see him appearing to Peter, then to over five, to more than 500 brothers at one time. 
and then to James, most likely his brother, his half-brother, then to the rest of the apostles. And then verse 8, he appears to Paul. And this is interesting. He says, last of all, and he's not being modest here. He's not being humble about it. He's speaking literally, last of all, because he wasn't there when all this was going on. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, Paul says. The fourth major witness here that we see of Christ's resurrection was the Apostle Paul. He was a unique witness of the risen Lord. Why? Because he wasn't among the original apostles. He wasn't among all those who had been discipled by Jesus Christ personally while he was here on earth. Um, He was not among the 500 other believers, other brothers who had seen the, the resurrected Christ. Rather, remember what Paul did. For many years, he was an unbeliever. He was uh, a, a chief persecutor of the church of Christ. And so, he was one who hated Christ. He hated everything to do with the church. He would go out and hunt them down and torture them, see them murdered. He was, however, last of all, allowed to see the risen Christ. And the Lord appeared to Paul. His appearance was not only post-resurrection, but also post-ascension. After Christ ascended, he made a special trip back just for the Apostle Paul, which makes his testimony even more unique and special. Because it wasn't during the 40 days in which he appeared to all the others, but years later, as the others to whom Christ appeared, except perhaps James, his half-brother, we don't know when he actually came to Christ, but maybe the resurrection did the trick for him, we don't know. But they were all believers Whereas Paul, who was then known as Saul, was what? He was violent. He was hateful. He was an unbeliever when the Lord manifested himself on the Damascus Road. Look at this with me over in Acts chapter 9. Because he has an incredible, incredible uh, testimony here. I mean, all testimonies are incredible. Amen? You know, just because they don't have the lights and all the stuff that's in this one. But it's, it's important to realize that uh, God definitely did something special here um, for Paul. It says there in chapter 9, Acts 9, verse 1, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? He's still on a rampage against anything that have to do with the church and Christ. You know, so many times we think that somehow we have to clean ourselves up before God can do anything for us. That's not true. That's not true at all. Here, he's still on a rampage. He's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. But Saul went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. Why? Because he wanted to go and figure out, okay, is there any Christians there? And if he found any belonging to the way, that was those who followed Christ. That was kind of their code name, you might say. Men or women. What was his goal? He might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And then suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Verse 4, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That would be unnerving. You're just traveling down the road. You're just doing your thing. You know, I don't know if Paul had malice in his heart or not. It says he was breathing threats and murder. That seems a little malicious. But he was just doing his job. As a Pharisee, that's what, he, that's what he was supposed to do. These, these Christians were threatening their religious way of life. And so he was doing this as a religious duty. He wasn't some psychopath out on a, on a 
uh, a task to just murder people. He was justifying his actions. And so here he is going along in this light from heaven, shows, shows all around him, and it says in verse 4, And falling to the ground, he heard this voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself, a Christophany. He came back and he presented himself there in his risen form. Verse 5, and he said, who are you, Lord? (laughs) And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Those words right there tell us, you know, are you mind, remember when Jesus said, when the disciples said, boy, when did we visit you in prison? When did we give you a cup of water? When did we do this? When he says, you know, you'll be blessed if you do these things. We never did that. And he said, oh, if you do it onto the least of these, you've done it unto me. So Jesus is saying here, you're persecuting these Christians. Really, you're persecuting me. See, if we can get that in our head, when we go out and we share <laughs> the gospel with people, whether it's at a booth at a, at a flea market or at work or whatever, and they attack you for your faith, who are they attacking? They're attacking Christ. And guess what? He can handle it. He can take it. It's us that can't take it a lot of times. We end up taking it personally. We feel, oh, we don't want to be rejected. And what does that do? Then the enemy tells us, well, you know, you don't go out there and share your faith. Or, you know, because then if you share your faith, people will attack you. And so you just be quiet. You just be a, a secret Christian. There's no such thing, my friend. There's no such thing. When you honestly understand what Christ has done for you, how could you be quiet about that? I mean, how, how could you ever be silent about it? I mean, I'm sure that if, if, if some just guy off the street walked up to you and gave you a check for a million bucks... I think that might be a little topic of conversation when we're having our meal over in the fellowship hall. Can't believe what happened to me this last week. This homeless guy came up to me and he gave me a cashier's check for a million bucks. It's legit. I put it in my bank. I never saw the guy before and I've never seen him since. You'd be a little excited to have a million dollars in your checking account. And you'd want to tell people about it. Christ has done so much more for us. He has forgiven us the eternal weight of our sin. He has taken us from darkness and transferred us into light. He has given us the privilege of participating in ministry with him. And he's given us the power to do it. He doesn't just say, oh yeah, have fun trying to do this on your own. No. He says, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit. And he's going to reside inside you. And he's there whenever you need him. Just, just cry out to him and say, hey, I need some help here putting these words together to share with this person who doesn't know Christ, or I need some help here dealing with this situation at work, or I need some help here dealing with my spouse or my children. The Spirit's there as our helper. God, Christ, has done all these things for us and so much more. And yet we've been convinced that if we shout it from the rooftops, people are going to think we're nuts. So be it. So be it. Don't believe that lie. Be willing to take a stand for Christ. So he says, why are you persecuting me? He says, hey, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Verse 6, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Now, Paul just didn't fall off the pumpkin truck. You know, he wasn't just some guy without any wits about him. He, pretty smart guy. I mean, he, he tells us how smart he was, right? He left all that stuff behind, but he had it together. And now this Jesus appears to him and says, yeah, go there and I'll tell you what to do. Well, look at what happens. Verse 7, the men who were traveling with Paul stood speechless. Because he wasn't going to go there and take out all these people by himself in Damascus. He had an entourage with him. A mob, you might say, and hey, we're going to get these Christians. Let's go get them. All right, Paul, you, you lead the way. Here we go. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice. But guess why They couldn't see Christ. See, Christ reveals himself to whom he desires. Verse 8, 
Saul arose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he couldn't see. He was blinded. He was blinded. So they led him, the, the group that was with him, the men, they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. That's how we should answer the Lord every time. <laughs> you know, when the Lord taps us on the shoulder, it shouldn't be, what do you want now? You know, I'm in the middle of something, Lord, what do you want? No, it should be, hey, here I am. What's, what's on the platter now? What do you got for me, Lord? Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, verse 11, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. Right about there, Ananias' jaw probably fell open, and he probably thought, am I hearing what I am hearing? For behold, he is praying, and he has seen a vision, in a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. God is doing a work in Saul's life that only God can do. And now he enlists Ananias in this adventure. Verse 13, but Ananias answered, <laughs> I said, here I am, but uh, let's, let's see here. Lord, I've heard many things about this guy. <laughs> Not good. How much evil he has done with your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. What's he doing? He's questioning God. He's saying, hey, Lord, I, I know I heard what you said, but let's, let's just revisit this. This doesn't make much sense. And so the Lord has to clarify with him. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go. No explanation. Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So... God says, you know what, Ananias, I understand your concern, but my purpose, my plan trumps your concern. So you're going to go. Verse 16, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Verse 17, for Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul. <laughs> I don't know if that's an endearing term or not. He was probably hopefully thinking it was. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, whom appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me. Now remember, he's already had a vision of someone coming to him. So this is just playing right into God's purpose. Appeared to you on the road by which you came, sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. You wonder if Paul missed his sight. I think he did. I think if you lost your sight, you would miss your sight too. We take it for granted every day we open our eyes and we can see. But can you imagine being able to see all those years and all of a sudden you're blind? And you can't see a thing. And now this guy comes and he gives him this message in verse 18, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. We're not told what it was. And he regained his sight. And then he rose and he was baptized and taking food. He was strengthened. And his ministry begins. What's interesting is when it says here that he was one who was untimely born. Um, the, the, the original language here the language refers to this. It refers to a miscarriage or an abortion. That's really what it, it speaks of. Or a, a premature birth. Uh, it refers to a life that's unable to sustain itself. And so the term could indicate here 
hopelessness for life without divine intervention. Uh, it can convey the idea that he was born without hope of meeting Christ. But the use of the term in the sense of an ill-timed birth, either too early or too late, I think fits what we're talking about here. He came too late to have been one of the twelve. And in carrying that idea of dead and useless and unformed, the term also had the, was used as a term of derision before his conversion, which really coincided with his vision of the resurrected uh, Lord, Paul was spiritually dead. He was useless, even though he had all this religiosity. He was a person to be scorned by God. Uh, Even when he was born, it was wrong timing. Christ was gone. How could he be an apostle? Yet by special divine provision, God takes care of that. He appeared to me also, Paul says. And and Paul never doubted his apostleship. He never hesitated to use his authority when he needed to. He also never ceased to be amazed that of all people, Christ would have called him to be an apostle. He didn't even meet the timeline. I mean, these other guys were fishermen. He was a Pharisee who went out and murdered Christians. I mean, he doesn't fit... The mold. He was not only considered himself to be the least of apostles, he says not even fit to be called an apostle. Why? Because he persecuted the church of God. He he persecuted the church of Christ. Well, now, because of his salvation, Paul knew that all all of his sins were forgiven, that he was not plagued by feelings of guilt over what he had once done against God's people. This is what Christ does for us when he saves us. But he could not forget for which he had been forgiven. It didn't drag him down, but it continually reminded him what he says there. That what? It's it's by the grace of God that I am what I am. It's by the grace of God that I am what I am. He deserved God's grace so little, it was just a constant reminder of how gracious God had been to him. See, when you come to Christ and you think for a moment that, well, yeah, of course God saved me. I mean, look at what I can do for God. If that's your mentality, we got a problem. There's one question you can ask people. That will indicate very quickly where they're at spiritually. It's a very simple question. Are you a good person? Do you think you're a good person? If you're sitting there this morning and you're saying, well, sure, pastor, I'm in church. I'm a good person. You have a misunderstanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't understand what it means to be a good person if you think you are a good person. Because none of us are good. What does the Bible say? All have fallen short. All have sinned. All stand before a holy God in judgment because of their sin. We should feel the weight of that sin in our own lives. And that weight should drive us to the foot of the cross where we look to Christ to say, take this weight, this, this horrible burden of sin that I've carried for so many years, take it from me. I've tried to get rid of it. I've tried to be right. I've tried to come to church. I've tried to do good things for people. I've tried all these things. But I can't get rid of the weight of this sin. And what does Jesus say? All you who are heavy laden, come, come, come to me. If you're thirsty, come. I have more than enough for you. I have more than enough grace to go around. And so Paul basically points out here that, you know what? First of all, he was under deep 
conviction. He had deep conviction and recognition of his own sin. You need that before you come to Christ. If you don't feel you need Christ, then guess what? You don't have Christ. For the first time, Paul realized how far his religious life took him away from God. And then secondly, he experienced a revolution of character, you might say. From a persecutor of the church, what happened? He became her greatest defender. You know, we just did a series, Not Giving Up. And it was originally geared around, you know, our country and the election, July 4th, all that stuff. But I think it's important that we understand, do, do we believe that God can change a person's character when he saves them? And if we do believe that, are we praying for God to save them? I mean, that's why Paul tells us, you know, we, we need to pray for those in authority over us. How long do you pray every day for President Biden, for Vice President Harris? Well, we're quick to criticize. We don't agree with any of their policies, whatever it might be. Oh, yes. But how, how much time do we actually spend in prayer for these people? These are not machines. They're human beings. God created them. And they're lost in their sin. President Biden's at the end of his life. He's close to eternity. Are you praying for that man? That he would recognize his need for Christ? Because God can transform him. God could revolutionize him. Could you, could you just imagine? President Biden had a news conference and said, you know what, I got something to say. I just got saved. What? Could God do that? Sure. It happened to Paul. Thirdly, not only had he dealt with this deep recognition of sin in this revolution of his character, but thirdly, he had a dramatic redirection of energy. The Bible says, as zealously as he went after the church before he was a Christian, he opposed them. Now he serves them. I mean, what a, what a radical change. You see the unworthiness of of Paul, but you also see the unmerited favor of God upon this individual. Paul didn't make himself who he was. We don't make ourselves who we are. It's God's grace that makes us who we are in Christ. And he says, I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. He's not saying he's perfect. None of us are perfect. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Do you ever think of that? What are you doing for Christ? What are you doing for Christ? How are you serving Christ? How are you serving his church? I never want God's grace to be considered vain in my life. I don't ever want to believe for a moment that, well, all my sins are forgiven, I just coast from here to eternity. No. This is what Paul is saying here. He says, on the contrary, verse 10, I work harder than any of them. Why? Because he feels he, he owes it to Christ. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. See, he's not lifting himself up. He's not saying, oh, look at me. No. See, this is the, the problem sometimes when we have 
people who sometimes are celebrities or they have a really, really rough background and they get saved. And the next Sunday, they're in the pulpit sharing their experience. That's very unhealthy. That doesn't help anybody. Because what happens? They're still kind of new to this thing. So what do they end up doing? They end up bragging up their previous life more than Christ. And you see it over and over and over again. And Paul says, no, I worked harder than any of them. This was a well-known teacher in the day. This wasn't just some guy that wandered in the town and got saved. No, this was Saul, the guy that went after the church with a vengeance. People knew him by name. And now he's converted. And all of a sudden he's preaching Christ. What a change. He's saying, I didn't do this. It was the grace of God. In verse 11, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. What he's saying there is basically, you know what? The message of the gospel, the testimony of that message is, has common results. It doesn't matter whether someone gets saved in Russia or South America or America or wherever you're from, if you get saved, certain things are going to take place in your life. You're going to feel the weight of your sin. You're going to turn to Christ, and you're going to see a resurgence of of a desire to serve him and to learn about his word and to, to grow in your relationship with him. Without exception, the preaching and the teaching in the early church centered on the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And whenever Christ was preached or by whomever he was preached, his resurrection was always the the pivotal point in that message. It had to be proclaimed. There was no dispute about the truth of the importance of this doctrine that we hold so dearly. I think that This one illustration closes it out for us. There's a guy by the name of Dr. Harry Rimmer. And he was lecturing in a certain place. And during the the question and answer time, a young Jewish man stood up and asked Dr. Rimmer this question. What did Jesus Christ do that no one else ever did? Kind of a skeptic. Pretty good question. And Dr. Rimner answered him this way. He said, sir, you are a Jew, right? Yeah. Would you agree with me that the Romans crucified nearly 30,000 young Jewish men? Historically, that's a fact. Would you, would you agree with me? And the questioner obviously answered, yeah, sure, I, I agree with that. That's, I, I agree with that. And Dr. Rimner continued, he said, all right, I will name one of those who were crucified. And you name another. I name Jesus Christ. Your turn. Who are you going to name? And the student stood there and he thought, and he says, I can't name another. See, the reason that young man could not name another Jew out of 30,000 is because time is, is really a great leveler of names and events. There was only one crucified Jew who was known to men, and his name is Jesus. Why? Because he lives. He lives. See, nobody hates a dead man. When people die, what happens? Hate, hate's forgotten. People move on. And yet, think about this. Satan hates Jesus with a vengeance. Hates him with a vengeance. The world hates Jesus with a vengeance. The demons hate Jesus with a vengeance. Why hate a dead man? What good does that do you? If Jesus is dead, then we're all crazy. We ought to be locked up.
But he's not. He's alive. And many of us here this morning can testify to that fact. And if you're here this morning and you haven't trusted the risen Christ, you haven't put your faith and trust, you haven't looked at the evidence honestly, he's waiting for you to make that affirmation, to look at Christ and say, yes, I believe who you are. I believe what you did for me. And I want to I come to you and live for you and accept the forgiveness that you freely offer me. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we pray that you would just take these words from Hebrews 13, 20. It says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our, our, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, we pray that if there's any here today, that they would cry out to you if they don't know you personally, if they haven't trusted you as their Lord and Savior, that you would do that mighty work of transforming their heart, calling them to be your own. And for us believers, I pray that we would realize there's a, there's a world out there that's in a world of hurt, and it needs to hear the gospel. It needs to hear the hope that we have in Christ. Let us not be shamed into being silent, but let us proclaim it from the rooftops that Jesus is alive and that his sacrifice on the cross is free to all who would affirm him as their Lord and Savior. We thank you and we praise you. Bless our time of fellowship across the way as well. In Jesus' name, amen.